the old pilot's plain tales. Straighten up and fly right. As I write this tale, it's St George's Day, the patron saint of jolly old England. I might point out that St George wasn't even English. He was either a Greek-Roman soldier and a member of the Praetorian Guard, or possibly a notorious 4th century Arian bishop known for exacting onerous taxes. Either way, the story of him slaying a Libyan dragon that was terrorising the city of Selene only appeared in the 12th century courtesy of the Archbishop of Genoa, and it achieved everlasting fame in the 15th century translation of The Golden Legend by William Caxton, who even named the dragon Ascalon after the Levantine city now part of Israel. There is an aviation link here as Winston Churchill named his personal wartime transport aircraft an Avro York C Mark I Ascalon. I digress. The subject of today's tale doesn't go back that far, only to 1922, and I came across the repercussions of it first when I was learning to glide, but more importantly when I was being prepared by my flying instructor for my first solo cross-country adventure in a venerable Cessna 150 Aerobat. I was 28 hours and 15 minutes into a flying scholarship course paid for by the RAF that would gain me my private pilot's license. With only around 8 hours solo flying, I was about to set off on my first solo cross-country which would take me to the motor racing circuit at Thruxton and then on to Shoreham by sea and finally back to Fair Oaks. In my inside pocket, I had a form that had to be signed by officials at both airfields certifying that I had successfully landed without crashing. I was 18 years old. Now, this isn't a story about me dodging low clouds and struggling to find Shoreham, despite it being on the coast and marked by a huge chimney that could be seen for miles, but the advice given to me by my instructor. Once you reach Woking, pick up the Southwestern Railway line from Waterloo and then branch right at Basingstoke onto the Andover line, or you'll end up in Exeter. And whatever you do, keep it on your left. It was that last bit of advice that brought to my mind the little I knew about the rules of the air. The Rules of the Air and Air Traffic Control Arrangement of Rules, Third Amendment, were, in 1970, only three years old and had some important gems for a budding pilot like me, such as... When flying over a congested area, I should fly at a height as would enable the aircraft to alight clear of the area and without danger to persons or property on the surface in the event of a failure of a power unit, or when two aircraft are approaching head-on or approximately so in the air and there is a danger of collision, each shall alter their course to the right, and the one that my instructor was referring to the right-hand traffic rule. Straighten up and fly right. Straighten up and stay right. Straighten up and fly right. Cool down, Papa, don't you blow your top. Fly right. 
This stated that an aircraft which is flying within the United Kingdom in sight of the ground and following a road, railway, canal or coastline or any other line of landmarks shall keep such a line of landmarks on its left. For reasons that defeat me, the rule goes on to give an exemption, stating, provided that this rule shall not apply to a helicopter following the motorway M4 on a route from West Drayton to Osterley Lock. Yeah, don't ask me, I've no idea. So armed, I safely completed my navigational task and the course, without any thought to what might have happened in the past to give rise to the right-hand traffic rule. Until now, that is. Let me take you back to the birth of commercial aviation in Europe after the First World War. Since 1919, the French airline... La Compagnie des Grands Express Aériennes had been flying a simple route system that connected the Paris airport Le Bourget with Lausanne and Geneva in Switzerland and Croydon Airport in London using the Farman F-60 Goliath. The Goliath started life as a proposed heavy bomber and initial testing was underway when the war ended. Rather than waste their investment, Farman realised that the aircraft could be redesigned as an airliner. The big boxy fuselage was altered to accommodate up to 14 passengers, and large windows fitted to afford those brave enough to risk early air travel a pleasant view of the passing countryside. The wings of this large biplane were of a simple rectangular construction and it was powered by a pair of French Samson, Renault or Lorraine engines affixed to the top of the lower wing. Farman was quick to get the Goliath into service and made a number of publicity flights but he was hampered by the wartime ban on civil flying that was still in place. He got around the restrictions by landing at RAF Kenley whilst all his passengers were uniformed military pilots with orders in hand. The demonstration flights were all a success, with the F-60 achieving an altitude of over 20,000 feet and it took six passengers plus a tonne of freight from Paris to Kufa in Senegal, 2,800 miles away, via Casablanca and Mogador. The Farman aircraft became popular with emerging airlines in Europe, but so too was the de Havilland DH-18A, a British-designed single-engine biplane. Powered by a Napier Lion, the DH-18A had engine mounts and undercarriage that were improved from the earlier DH-18 and could house eight passengers within an enclosed cabin. One of the airlines operating this particular model of aircraft was Daimler Airway, a subsidiary of the Birmingham Small Arms Company that motorcycle aficionados will recall made the fabulous BSA Gold Star, a 500cc single. It was amongst the fastest bikes of the 1950s, taking first, second, third, fourth and fifth places in the 1954 Daytona Beach Race. Daimler Airways operated the de Havilland aircraft on the Croydon to Paris route, 
until it could take delivery of the larger 10-seater DH-34. As previously mentioned, Grand Express was operating the same route, albeit originating from Paris. The scene was therefore set, and I have no doubt that the astute listeners amongst you will already be speculating on what befell the Daimler Airway mail flight departing Croydon on the 7th of April 1922 and the Grand Express aircraft that left Le Bourget on the same day just after noon. In the de Havilland DH-18 was Lieutenant R. Duke and a boy steward, Hesterman, whilst the Goliath was being flown by Monsieur Mir, accompanied by a mechanic and three passengers, two Americans and a Frenchman named Borrier. The weather was marginal, with low cloud giving forth a light drizzle and rain from above, meeting a murky fog below, and since instrument flying was yet to be devised, both pilots were struggling to stay visual with the ground so that they could navigate. I should take a moment now to explain why the British drive on the left side of the road and the French on the right. Imagine for a moment you are riding your horse in the Middle Ages and you want to defend yourself with your sword against strangers you pass on the road. Most people, being right-handed, gave themselves the best opportunity to swing their weapons by riding on the left. This rule appears to go back as far as Roman times, as we've discovered that they drove their carts and wagons and even marched on the left. This rule of the road was officially sanctioned in 1300 AD when Pope Boniface VIII declared that all pilgrims travelling to Rome should keep to the left. It was the arrival of large wagons, where a driver sat on the rear left horse or ox to keep the whip hand aligned with the middle of the team that made driving on the right easier. This became commonplace in North America with its large open spaces, but not Britain. Here the drivers sat on seats, attached to their smaller wagons made for the narrower lanes, and it was better to drive sitting on the right, keeping the whip hand free. Indeed, in 18th century London, a law was passed to ensure that all traffic on London Bridge drove on the left to reduce collisions. This rule was incorporated into the Highway Act of 1835 and was adopted throughout the British Empire. You can blame France's move to the right side of the road on Napoleon. In earlier times, the aristocrats had priority on the left, and peasants had to move over to the right. After the revolution in 1792, he decreed that all traffic should keep to the common side, the right. Back to 1922, Pilots of the day, most of whom survived the rigours of military flying in the First World War, recognised the dangers of following landmarks and meeting someone coming the other way, so they had devised informal practices to avoid collisions based on the rules of the road. This meant that because French drivers stayed on the right side of the road, their pilots likewise stayed to the right of a feature that they were following. The same was being done in England, 
but nobody had yet realised that there was a problem because English cars drove on the left side of the road. Thus, Lieutenant Duke and Monsieur Mir were flying in opposite directions, but both were on the same side of the feature they were following, the main road through Grand Villiers in Picard to Paris. The weather being poor, both aircraft were also flying just below the overcast, putting them at the same altitude, struggling to see ahead and concentrating on their navigation. Eyewitnesses described regularly seeing aircraft flying towards London, and on this day they could hear a big machine, but it remained hidden in the fog and rain until a Goliath suddenly emerged from a bank of cloud about 500 feet above them. Hardly had it come into view when a second aircraft burst from the cloud, heading in the opposite direction and directly towards it. There was no time to wonder before a dreadful noise of the two machines crashing reached them, and they watched a shower of debris flutter down as the airplanes were turned into a mess of smashed wood and twisted metal. A wing from the Goliath had been torn from the fuselage and hit a nearby building, whilst the rest fell into a field. The de Havilland hit the ground near it, making a crater five feet deep. Rescuers rushed to help, but initially all they found were the broken bodies of the unfortunate crew and passengers in what remained of the Goliath's luxurious cabin, which they struggled to pull from the wreckage before the fire took hold. There was but one occupant of the British aircraft, but nearby they found the body of the young steward who had been thrown clear and was, miraculously, alive but unresponsive. Sadly, he would succumb without ever regaining consciousness. Newspapers around the world carried headlines such as Americans die in French air crash. Christopher Bruce Yule and his wife killed on London-Paris airplane route were on their honeymoon. French and British planes in collision in a fog. Six are dead and one dying. Frederick Guest, the British Secretary of State for Air, on behalf of the government, extended his condolences to the French Undersecretary of State for Air and the Chairman of Dame La Hire Limited in this short message. In my own name and that of the Air Council, I offer you my deepest sympathy on the fatal air collision which occurred yesterday. The only accident of this kind in the history of air transport between Great Britain and France. This was not the world's first mid-air collision, which actually occurred in 1910 at the Milano Securito Aereo Internazionale. Between, again, a British pilot and a Frenchman. This time the British Army captain rammed the French farman in the rear, and both pilots survived. The Picardy accident was the world's first mid-air collision between airliners, and it highlighted the need for international cooperation and an agreed set of rules that would apply to every nation. As a result, seven major European companies, including the two airlines involved, 
plus representatives from the Air Ministry and a number of senior pilots met at Croydon Airport to discuss a standardised set of rules for international air travel. Amongst the resolutions passed was the right-hand traffic rule. Straighten up and fly right. Straighten up and stay right. Straighten up and fly right. Cool down, Papa, don't you blow your top. Fly right. Plus other measures to improve air safety for the travelling public. These included a universal definition of who had the right of way in the air, something similar to that that existed on the world's oceans. These rules stated that flying machines shall give way to airships, gliders and balloons. Airships shall give way to gliders and balloons, and gliders shall give way to balloons. Balloons, of course, just give way. When two aircraft are converging, the aircraft that has the other on its right shall give way. In addition, there was agreement that future airliner designs would ensure that the pilots had good visibility to give them a clear view ahead and that all airliners would be fitted with radios. The accident also proved to be the catalyst that spawned the creation of the world's first airways system to ensure that separation between aircraft was maintained and clearly defined air routes were introduced in Belgium, France, the Netherlands and the United Kingdom. Both airlines continued to operate successfully as aircraft accidents and incidents were commonplace at the time, but mid-air collisions were rare and the likelihood of a similar occurrence was considered unlikely. Two years later, along with three other airlines, Daimler Airways merged to form the enormously successful Imperial Airways, which would in turn give birth to the British Overseas Airways Corporation, BOAC, and then with British European Airways to become British Airways, a well-known company that operates to this day. In France, Grand Express combined with others to form Air Union, which would ultimately join another four airlines to become Air France. Plane Tales is a featured segment of the Airline Pilot Guy show. You can find out about that at AirlinePilotGuy.com And if you're listening to this, you'll know that Plane Tales is also a standalone podcast. And if you're enjoying the stories, then why not help us out and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or your podcatcher of choice. We'd appreciate it. And many thanks for listening.